4: Welcome, welcome! Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so excited to be here and uh, to be doing a show. It is it's it's May. It's almost mid-May, and uh, there's less than a month to go until San Francisco Pride. I have mentioned it here before on the program that I'm the board president for San Francisco Pride. I can't say that I would do it again next year. It's just an incredible amount of work, but um, it's been. It's been awesome. It's been awesome in a lot of ways in kind of diversifying uh, the programming for San Francisco Pride, in which we'll talk about in the second half of the show, um, it's also been amazing to bring back the celebration to address the issues that are impacting the LGBTQI community. Um, it's funny that I say that that you know as as if it's just happening now. These issues that we're talking about, such as homelessness, such as poverty, such as unemployment, um, all these you know access to basic things that LGBTQI people need, but Addressing it from the perspective of people of color, or you know, being someone who is transgender and who's black, and 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 talking about police brutality and incarceration right here in a city like San Francisco, it's been happening for for a for a long time. But um, somewhere somehow, our movement had to address marriage first before we got to this place. That we can talk about these these issues openly and uh, probably because, in my opinion, there's a modern rev- revolution happening with this thing called technology or you have access to technology, you can go online, you can talk about it, and, and yes, people are absolutely angry. Um, Lots of people have been asking me about Black Lives Matter, the organization that's uh, considered, you know, the community organizational grand marshal of San Francisco Pride this year. And one question I think is often, I I hate to just use this word, but stupid. (laughs) I'll just go there is asking me, you know, what does Black Lives Matter have to do with the LGBTQI community? I I find it a stupid question because it's almost as if uh, black queer people don't exist. Yes, black queer people do exist. And that is the whole point we're trying to make is call out attention to the issues that impact their lives. So before we talk about San Francisco, Pride, though, brought up, you know, how marriage, this whole conversation of marriage had been so huge. It still continues to be huge, but it was at some point in which we tried to argue for the right to marry in the LGBTQI community. And so on this program, we've heard from um, even people like Edie Windsor, you know, to, to Roberta Her attorney who fought for that case, we've heard from HRC, we've heard from ACLU, we've heard from National Center for Lesbian Rights and various politicians who have said that they had contributed to this thing now called marriage equality. Well, I'm so excited for our guest today. So let's get this program started. Uh, today's program is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. Our next guest has been talking about marriage um, as an openly gay man for a long time, since the early 90s. That's that's new for you millennials who think that gay marriage is because of someone like Chad Griffin, Um the guy who heads human rights campaign or HRC. Um, And this person has been writing about marriage and been arguing for same-sex marriage um, not not just since the '90s, but you know, to to conservatives and rationalizing it based off of religion and other ways. And he's an extremely intelligent man, having uh, graduated from Yale. Um, so I'm very very excited and kind of nervous, you know, to, to introduce you to Jonathan Rauch. Jonathan, thanks so much for being here with us today.
5: No, it's a pleasure. Uh, I'm not sure that intelligence and the Yale follow in the same sentence, though. I'm not sure how that really works.
4: <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for clarifying that. It's just, um, I meant to, to say more. I mean, you know, I'm also an avid reader of The Atlantic. You've contributed there so many times in New York Times. And you've, you know, just do your thought process and some of the work that I've read and, and following you. You know, there's clarity to it. There's intelligence to it. And uh um, it's just, uh, you don't hear that very much nowadays, especially with mainstream media. It, it's almost as if mainstream media, of course it makes you more dumb. I wanted to open up with a question of that and kind of what your thoughts were about all of this, especially during this very important election year. Um, you've got credible people or that, well, it depends on where you fall on the political spectrum. And, and there are very, very many, uh, you know, uh, uncredible people, people who sh- really shouldn't be running for office at all in this election, and people are turning to, like, Fox News to get their information. Someone like you <laughs> and your thoughts, what what do you think of all this mess, this, this I, I think, a circus is the right word?
5: Well, I'm not that different from a lot of people in that I'm just, just as worried as I possibly could be. Um, of the four... Leading candidates will set aside John Kasich because I don't think he was, you know, ever had a shot at any kind of real number of delegates. I think three out of the four major candidates are political sociopaths, meaning Mm -hmm. they're people who don't play well with others and don't want to play well with others. Um, And that's a problem because the system used to screen out people like that who just never, ever played with others. Politics is a team sport. So that's got me worried. Um, I'm not a fan of Trump, to put it mildly, and it's not just a question of policy to me. He's They're just some kinds of people who do not pass the bar of being someone you want with their finger on that button.
1: Mm-hmm.
5: Um, and there he is as a major nominee. You've got a Republican Party now that's so fragmented yet so extreme that it cannot essentially function as an organization. Mm-hmm. Um so if you sit where I sit, there's all kinds of stuff to be worried about. But, you know, on that cheery note, at least I'm married, which yeah. is a huge deal.
4: Yeah. And I mentioned that, you know, it's it's interesting because a lot of people think that gay marriage happened in the last, I don't know, uh, few years, which it, it can feel that way. You you jump from 2013 to 2015 and all of a sudden all states in this country now recognize marriage equality. Um you started writing about, you know, marriage equality back in uh, the early 90, 90s, as I had mentioned. And I was curious to ask you kind of, you know, first of all, you had this courage to write about it in a way where conservatives were arguing against it and not you know, the people's opinion about same sex marriage was not as high as it is now. Um, but what was it like to, to be vouching for marriage equality during that time?
5: It was like, as H.L. Mencken said, um, shouting up a drain pipe in Afghanistan. Uh Um, I still remember in, uh, I think, September of 1995, I was with my father, who was not a homophobe by any stretch, but he was telling me, begging me not to get involved in writing about gay marriage and being for it, because at that point I was about to publish my first major article on the subject in new republic Mm -hmm. and the reason he begged me not to wasn't that like he was against it although he probably was and he certainly wasn't anti-gay he loved me we dealt with my being gay he said um if i wrote about this that i would never be taken seriously as a journalist again that it would end my career because it was such a completely crazy idea people would no longer take me seriously and at the time, that was actually something I had to think about. You know,
1: he—it
5: seemed like he might be right about that. It didn't work out that way, but that's how marginal this idea was back in the beginning.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: Now, I mean, there goes a the question: Why? I mean, why would any one of us in the LGBTQ community, or as an activist yourself, or you believe in equal rights and treatment for all people? Why would you? stick your neck out for something like marriage equality when uh, LGBTQI people couldn't even be out. Uh, I mean, out, but uh, there were still, you know what I mean?
5: I know what you mean. In in those days, people still thought twice about holding their hand in public, even on K Street in Washington. Um, And in those days, we had just, gotten a glimmer that the plague might be about to end, and marriage was, like, completely impossible. There's no way you could could ever get that in our lifetime or even our kids' lifetime. Mm -hmm. Uh, In, well, I don't know why I did it. You know, it's (laughs) funny, all these years, Michelle, you might be the first one to ask. I thought it was the right answer. The minute I read about it, Andrew Sullivan wrote the first great pioneering article in New Republic, and the minute I read it, I knew that was the right answer. I was someone who, like a lot of people my age, was not comfortable with the gay culture as it stood in the, in the 70s and, and part of the 80s, you know, the culture of parties and, and paupers and multiple sexual encounters every night and rejecting the idea of family and rejecting religion. Um, I didn't see that as liberating because I grew up, I wanted those things. My parents were divorced and what I mostly dreamed of was having a happy marriage and the hardest thing about coming out when I was 25 was thinking, I'll never be married. I'll never have a home. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll never have a wife, which means I'll never have the marriage, which means I'll never have a life. Um, So I just thought it was the right answer and second, I'm a journalist and writer, so I didn't have that much to lose. You know, it wasn't like I was CEO of some company or had a political career. Um, But I don't know, why do people do stuff that they care about? Like, why do you have this show? You know, (laughs) it's like at some level, you just feel like you need to do it, right? It's going to give some purpose to your life and it's going to be a way that you can contribute. And I just felt, you know, I can do this and someone needs to and why should not? So I kind of did, but I don't know. Is that even an answer?
4: It is an answer. I think that it was, you know... Uh, You're absolutely right. Why do we do what we do? We have a passion for it. And, you know, parts of... I mean, one of the reasons why I ask is some people feel like, you know, they're passionate, they're driven because they had a partner for 10, 15 years and that was something that they had looked forward to. So when I read your, uh, you know, your your electronic uh, piece, Denial, which was part of the Atlantic's Publishing efforts, right? It was all Mm -hmm. uh, electronic and in in talking about your childhood and being introverted and and, and At the same time though, you kind of had these experiences in which you weren't uh, You didn't fall into this incredible depression of being like I'm not accepted and not tolerated in fact you at some point in your years had a kind of a positive experience in uh, accepting that you are a gay man. Um, you know, a lot of people had uh, reasons for rejection, such as religion, such as, you know, family, rejecting them. Um, so I kind of, you know, wanted to ask why, because I was wondering if, like, there had been some, like, personal experiences that kind of led up to this breaking free moment of, fuck it, <laughs> I need to be able to say these things. So that these fools who, you know, can't think for themselves, um, it could to prove them wrong.
5: Well, I spent the first 25 years in not only the closet, but in this place where I convinced myself I wasn't gay. And I did that by convincing myself that I would never love another human being. Because it seemed to me then that somehow being gay, loving a man, was somehow worse than loving no one. So I twisted my personality in all kinds of ways to deny being gay and, and then wrote this book about it and 20 years ago now, but only brought it out recently, a few years ago, because I kept it in a drawer for a while. And just to give a, a short advertisement, you can find it at www.theatlantic.com slash denial. And it's an e-book for only a $1.99, which is less than a cup of coffee.
4: I bought uh, mine. <laughs> oh, good. Thank you.
5: Um, but what it tries to do is is recreate for people who've never been there, like a lot of members of your generation, I think, I hope,
1: mm-hmm.
5: what it's like to spend your life not just denying to the outside world that you're gay, but denying to yourself that you're gay in, in ways that just demolish who you are and force you to twist yourself. I think, I came to believe I had some sort of strange, previously unknown psychiatric condition that meant it would be impossible for me to ever experience the emotion of love. And the other reason I've, I wanted to publish this book is because so much of it's about growing up in a world without marriage, um, because I did want family and marriage, the things I never really, that my parents never accomplished. Mm-hmm. Part of the reason I twisted myself that way was to try to preserve some faint hope that somehow eventually I would turn out normal and therefore be able to have a normal family life. Um, and one of the reasons I felt so strongly about marriage all those years is that it gives people like me when I was a child and a young man, a destination for love. It says you too can have a home, a family, a spouse because your home is where your spouse is, right? That's who you're going home to. Home is a who, not a where. Um, and marriage gives us that it gives us a destination for our love, um, and that's it's important whether you're married or not. It tells you from the age of five on when you feel that first inkling of sexual desire or or love or passion, there's a place for me and for us out there um and that's just a huge difference so anyway, that's why I, why I wrote that book.
4: I think that's the answer we we're searching for, so thank you so much for that um. And the definitions of of why we do the things we do, and we continue to do it even today in twenty sixteen so you know, yes, we have marriage equality, but now we're talking about things as simple as like you know access to uh, public accommodations and restrooms and then trying yeah. to to you know and so i I also wanted to kind of ask you about that, in that it just from a writer's perspective, and you're hearing all this that's happening um you know, from this, these these states and these politicians or legislators who are trying to pass these types of bills that, like, discriminate or undermine the progress that we've made. I, I mean, it feels like a circus to me. Does it feel like a circus to you? Does it feel like we're living in this, like, uh, in you know, this new— I can't even explain what type of America we're living in, but— um, I I wanted to offer you that from my perspective and not having fought for marriage equality since the 90s, but experiencing it from, you know, 2013 and beyond, uh, I just feel like it's getting crazier and crazier.
5: It's more like a repeat performance. It's more like, didn't we just leave this party? Um, As it happens, the person I was sitting with talking to right here until you called is um, an 18-year-old trans friend who's dealing with this right now, and, and he was here, you remember the vote in Houston where they used the bathroom issue to overturn the Houston Gay Rights Ordinance? Yeah. Um, so, you know, a few months ago, he was in here saying, I can't deal with this. You know, do I have to spend my entire life fighting about going to the bathroom? I didn't sign up for that. I don't want that. And, you know, he was almost in tears. But that same person is in here today has just written an article that's been accepted by the Washington Post that's going to educate people about the bathrooms and is now saying, yeah, I can speak out. I'm going to, mm. I'm going to make some trouble about this issue. And I sat here thinking, you know, that's how it works. Initially, we're overwhelmed and it's crazy. And whoever told us that we have to – who volunteered us – to have to be activists for the simple things in life, like not being arrested in our own homes. How about that? We're working for the federal government or getting married or being able to use the bathroom without having the crap beaten out of you. Right. These are the basics of life, and you have to struggle for this. But here he was saying, I'm going to fight that fight, and here I am saying, yeah, you're going to have to, and you know what? You're going to win, and you're going to win it faster than we did.
4: Michelle Meow I'm speaking with American author, journalist, activist, Jonathan Rauch. And uh, like I said earlier, I'm super nervous. and <laughs> excited to be speaking to him at the same time. It's just because I think it's a different conversation that we've had recently about LGBTQ activism and the movement and all that. I mean, he has talked about marriage since 91 and not just to, you know, to the, the gay community, but the but the entire country and writing articles featured in New York Times, The Atlantic. Um, Jonathan, I want to kind of switch gears on you. I want to talk about this idea of the LGBTQI activist world as an establishment or, you know, I mentioned HRC a couple times, not saying that they are the establishment, but um, this whole... You know, uh, uh, LGBTQI people who are not being fired anymore uh, for working for the government or, you know, just yesterday, the Department of Justice uh, Attorney General uh, literally, you know, spoke words directed to the transgender community. So we've acclimated or some of us are assimilating a lot faster than others Um what what are your you know, do you have a love hate relationship like I do uh, in regards to a gay the gay establishment or, you know, because sometimes I do feel that there are voices more important than me in the activist world that tell me how I should think. And I'm just wondering how much of it should should we all kind of accept Um and how much of, hmm. of this and, you know, kind of the political uh, intersections that we have, because we're changing a little bit, right? There's more of us who are coming out now that we're gay, we're conservative. So it's it's interesting to have conversations even with like a gay conservative because they're so different um, in, in how they think than, than I do. So uh, I was just wondering, I wanted to kind of pick your brain in, on on what your thoughts were about that.
1: Hmm.
5: Is it? Do we have to choose? Can we not have people who are, who are very different? Can we not have big groups like HRC that work the inside game and, and do it pretty effectively and help candidates who help us mm-hmm. uh, while at the same time having some radicals and outside voices who come at it from a very different angle and keep the rest of us honest? Like, Don't, don't those things kind of more work together? Do we have to choose?
4: Great question. I don't think so. I don't think so. But when you've got, you know, organizations um, who do things like endorse someone like Mark Kirk um, and then, you know, some people in the community are up in arms and all of a sudden we're being told who we should and it's some other Democrat that we need to be raising money for. Uh, I just I just wonder if, like, you know, why, why can't we just be honest about the fact that sexual orientation, gender identity is not necessarily something that, you know, throws us into the same pot Uh, as much as we have been fighting as as if we are from the same pot. We're actually extremely different.
5: (laughs) Well, that's for sure. You know, it took a lot of doing to get gays and lesbians on the same page because for years, those two communities didn't have very much to do with each other. So one of the movements, not movements, but things I've been involved with since the 90s, separate from gay marriage, was something we called the Independent Gay Forum, which was a kind of um, kind of group, sort of, you know, like an online group and intellectual home for non-left-wing gay people and lesbian people. Because in those days, it was kind of assumed that if you were a homosexual, you were going to be left of center politically. Um, and we said, well, no, we're... we're We're really diverse. We're not like Republicans, necessarily, but we believe in free markets and religious liberty and stuff like that. Um, So we were trying to create that space, and one of the points we made is the point you just made, which is there's, there's no such thing as a monolithic gay community. It's not like we speak with one voice. We were united on marriage, eventually, but even that took some doing. When that battle started, a lot of people said, well, why would we even want to get married? Or serve serving the military. Isn't that just selling out to all the things we've been struggling against? So I think you're, you're completely right. But I, I guess I'd, my reaction would be more like, well, whoever said we were all on the same page, and, and why should we be? We're, we're all fighting for equality by our own lights, but there's no reason we have to agree every day on exactly what that means. And that isn't, in fact, isn't the way we make progress, working this out
4: mm-hmm.
1: in this
5: constant interaction with each other.
4: Just a couple more questions before I let you go. I'm sure you have, uh, you know, a lot of things that you needed to do. Um, I, I wanted to also ask about, you know, I brought up all these issues that we're now talking about. Racial issues, um, economic issues that LGBTQI people are facing. There's new reports now that actually give us statistics and facts that uh, LGBTQI people of color face, you know, a, a huge problem percentage of discrimination that is disproportionate, proportionate to other marginalized groups. Um, so going back to that whole, you know, being on the same page and and being united to fight for equal rights, it, there's this thing that I keep saying, I mean, we're really not all equal until we're all equal, right? Uh, at this, you know, I, I, I don't really know if I feel confident that uh, we'll get We'll get united back on, uh, or be on the same page as we were for marriage equality for some of these other small things, or I shouldn't say small, but very important issues that we're currently talking about, which is the racial stuff, which is, you know, helping people who are less fortunate, who don't get taxed over $300,000 for not, you know, being able to recognize their relationship. Who speaks for the poor? Who speaks for for those of us less fortunate in the LGBTQI community who who gets united to fight for those voices? Or do you see that as various other communities coming together to to lend their hand on these very specific issues?
5: Well, I, I would hope, of course, that that lots of people would fight for that. Um, I'd also say it's a different kind of thing, because with, with same-sex marriage, we're fighting for... Equality before the law, uh, same with service in the military, same with getting rid of sodomy laws. we're We're facing a regime of government discrimination which you could, to a large extent, fix by changing the law, classic civil rights movement. With inequality, Michelle, we're talking about something really profound that government can't just fix. In fact, no one knows how to fix this. And in fact, you know I'm sitting here, in the belly of the establishment beast at the Brookings Institution, the oldest, biggest, most prominent think tank in the world. And it seems like half of what we do around here now is go through these numbers that are finding inequality appearing in all kinds of aspects of American life. It's not just economic. Mm -hmm. It's social. It's employment situation. It's volatility in terms of how safe your job is. It's also family Marriage now, which is gay people ironically, just got the opportunity to marry, but people without the college a college degree, are effectively marriage is out of reach for them. They no longer feel they can afford it. and that's often true. Marriage now is becoming a gated community to an extent we've never seen before, a perquisite of people with college degrees. so, even our marital family situations are becoming bifurcated along class lines. Um, class now and family structure are bigger social divides than race, believe it or not, and this has been true for some years. If, as a thought experiment, if you imagine you're a fetus or an embryo waiting to be born
1: mm-hmm.
5: and you were trying to choose a couple to be born to, parents, you're choosing your parents, and you wanted to choose that on the basis of where you would have sort of the best socioeconomic outcomes in life. And you're only allowed to know two things. One couple, you you can know if the couple black or white, you can know their race. The other thing you can know is, are they married or unmarried? It turns out if those are the only two things you know, you are significantly better off going with the married couple regardless of race instead of with the white couple regardless of marriage. marriage The marriage gap is now bigger than the race gap in terms of determining where kids end up. So where I'm going with all this is that inequality, multidimensional inequality, is the next huge problem in American life. And that's part of what the Bernie Sanders phenomenon is about. And I think it's also part of what the Trump phenomenon is about. People don't like this. They feel it's wrong. They feel it's unjust. Um, So lots of people are going to grapple with this. It's not just a gay problem. And if it were to become just a gay problem, we would never solve it.
4: Absolutely. Thank you so much, uh, Jonathan, for your awesome words, your you your time really, and just giving me the opportunity to speak with you. I feel like <laughs> I feel like a groupie's finally tracked you down and said, Please come on my oh, show. I'm, I'm flattered to do it and I'm, I'm it was a great show. Um if
5: you were nervous you sure didn't sound it. You're a heck of a good interviewer, so <laughs>
4: uh yeah, no 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 I'm
5: acquaintance can I just ask about Sure. Do you pronounce your name Meow? Yeah. Like the cat?
4: Yeah. My mom um, had this crazy dream about well first of all I should I should say a full disclaimer she had plans for an abortion and so the night before the abortion um she had this crazy dream about this cat that kept following her around and you know meowing and and all that stuff and and um she's uh Tevada Buddhist and so they believe in you know the reincarnation of spirits and all that stuff and so she really thought that that was a sign, that was a message that I was asking her for my life. Uh, and so, you know, wow, despite... that's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> despite what... Here I am telling you a story on my show. But but that's uh, that's why my on-air name is Michelle Miao. Um, most of... When I started radio 10 years ago and I gave them my native last name, Sin Bandit, uh, you know, most of the radio programmers, the uh, older white guys, were like, that's not going to fly on the air. <laughs> So, I had to give up my last name.
5: <laughs> so wait, Meow is the name you took when you gave up your last name?
4: No, no, it's it's my legal middle name. So I use my middle name, Michelle Meow, as my on-air name because uh, most radio programmers uh, ten years ago just didn't think that my ethnic last name would be uh, too you know memorable. <laughs> yeah. So, but a lot of people change their name, you know, in, in conservative radio spaces. I worked for Clear Channel for a long time.
1: <laughs> really?
4: Yeah. Um, before I let you go, though, I I do appreciate you talking a whole lot about being an introvert and, and bringing up the subject of understanding introverts, because uh, you know that's that's part of my deal too. I, I actually am. I identify more as an introvert than an extrovert. And so I also wanted to point that out. You do great writing, touching on being an introvert.
5: You know, my my all-time bestseller is probably Caring for Your Introvert, which was this fun little Atlantic piece that ran in 2003 and then disappeared for a couple of years and then suddenly kind of got a second viral life online. And now here it is, 2016, and everyone knows who introverts are, and people are starting to become conscious of the introverts in their midst, and they're actually starting to become aware of it. So that's a great thing. When you feel discouraged, Michelle, just, just remember that it takes time, but um, America's an amazing place in terms of making progress on, on individual freedom and liberty and rights over time. You can do wondrous things.
4: <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for that. Jonathan, again, thanks so much for joining us and for spending time with us. Pleasure. Don't go away. The Michelle Mial Show continues right after this. We're going to take a, a, a quick short break. We didn't take a break during our interview with Jonathan because I was just having such a good time. So after the actual break, we're going to play a two-minute uh, piece, a profile piece that's sponsored by Wells Fargo. But it's about people who actually do great things in the LGBTQ community. And then we'll be back. Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit pacificfertilitycenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW.
3: Hi, I'm Chuck Spence. I'm the owner of the Maui Sunseeker LGBT Resort, and I'm also vice president of Maui Pride. It's not just the only LGBT resort in Maui, it's the only LGBT resort in all of Hawaii, which is really kind of amazing. Maui Sunseeker actually started years and years before I even got involved. I came along as one of the owners a little bit later in in life. I came to Maui back in 1978 and absolutely loved the island. I fell in love and I thought, this is where I want to live. This is where I want to be. And so from 1978 until 2008, I finally came alive with the dream and bought the Maui Sunseeker because I realized that this would be the next step in my life. And um, thought that this would be an ideal situation because I could do something that, that was my own business rather than making money for other people. It's important to have a place where you, know, you can feel comfortable about yourself. you can feel loved and you can feel welcomed by everybody. And I think that that's the ambiance that we try to create. And, and that's the message that, that we try to deliver in all of our ads and trying to bring people to Maui is that you know, we're not just an experience on Maui. We're an experience of Maui. When you think back years ago, how closeted we used to be, and you think about how suppressed we were back then to how open and accepting we are now, and, and it's, it's a good progression for society. It's good that people are, are not just you know, tolerating, but appreciating diversity. And that's the message, is that we really need to make sure that, that people appreciate diversity. I think that whoever you are, Follow your passion, follow what you believe in, follow whether it leads you down the path of art or whether it leads you down a path of business or some other aspect of internet creativity. Um, Follow that and, and just be passionate about what you do. Spotlight on Success and Achievement is brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. And now, back to The Michelle Meow Show.
4: Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining me here today, this hump day, this Wednesday, May 11th. I'm Michelle Miao, your host. Boy, (laughs) I was kind of stumbling there to to kind of grab my thoughts. It's always so intimidating when you talk to someone who is is an intellectual, you know, someone who thinks for himself and, and does an incredible job of articulating these free thoughts (laughs) because I, <laughs> I am definitely a victim or I shouldn't say a victim, but I have um, I've drank in the Kool-Aid. I, I've I've sat here, you know, and kind of sometimes questioning where my free thoughts come from. And if it had been, you know, the man or the government or some some big corporation handing it to me subconsciously. Uh, but anyway. So much thanks and appreciation to someone like Jonathan Roush, a great big thinker, a, a great voice for the LGBTQ community. All right. Well, Let's get started with uh, our next half of the program and introduce you to our next guest, who is a wonderful, wonderful friend of mine. He's a filmmaker. He's here in San Francisco. I'd mentioned some of the work that I'm doing with San Francisco Pride this year. It might be the one and only year I serve as board president, so I might as well go ahead and talk about it as if it is my last year. Um, But we have some exciting news as far as programs. And so my next guest and I are working on a project— I don't think it's the first ever short documentary that is being produced for San Francisco Pride, but we might as well say that, well, it's the first for us anyway. So let's welcome filmmaker Jethro Palinghug to the program. Jethro, thanks so much for being with me.
2: Hi, Michelle. It's a pleasure for me to be a guest on your show.
4: Um, Yeah, I guess this is the first time officially, right, on the radio program at least. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Which... We should make it to the, the local TV show because then we could show all the great, beautiful things that we're working on. So I just mentioned earlier about how, you know, San Francisco Pride and the work that we're doing together. It's so meaningful from like a personal level, but it's also meaningful because this year's theme is so important for racial and economic justice. Um I want to talk about, and I also want to let everyone know, you know, we're working on a short documentary, and I haven't seen any of the footage, so I kind of wanted to bring <laughs> you on the show to talk about your feelings uh, uh, as far as how it's it's shaping up, what's coming out, what are some of the things that you've learned so far before we actually even launch it?
2: Yes, definitely. Um, I'm having a great time. Um with the subjects that we've chosen, the grand grand marshals themselves. They're amazing. And, um, the kind of work that they do is really inspiring. And I've learned so much through the process. Um, uh, there's a unifying theme that I could uh, almost identify. And, um, uh, that definitely shows in the work of Larry and, um, fresh, uh, fresh white. They both are into, um, um, the mindfulness, um, um, space, and um, that's basically how they um, um they, um, yeah, they that's, kinda, that's
4: where yes, they bring in in their work and kind of keeps yes. them grounded. So I should go back and clarify Larry Yang is the public's choice for uh, Community Grand Marshal. And here in San Francisco, or at San Francisco Pride, we have Grand Marshals that we recognize for their incredible work within the LGBTQI Mm. community. And then Fresh White also does um, the same, uh, you know, as far as, like, work in the uh, meditative uh, community, but also has been a huge voice about equality for marginalized communities within our own community, such as, you know, being black, being transgender, um, and, and things like that.
2: Yes, thank you for verbalizing that, Michelle. Um, <laughs> and and you're you're on point. And um, as I was saying earlier, I could almost um, um, find a unifying factor in in most of their work, even with Jeanette Johnson. Um, it's amazing that um, these individuals have gone through a lot in their lives, and they are now facing head on uh, the discrimination and the oppression within their communities with really, um, how shall I say it, Um, really innovative ways and as well as uh, spiritual ways to to combat um, and even teach uh, the community that they have within their work. Um, It's amazing that they have these, um, um, they've found these ways to, you know, really fight discrimination and oppression.
4: Mm hmm. Now, you know, you bring up Janetta Johnson, who is the executive director of the TGI Justice um, Project. And, mm-hmm. you know, this is an organization that focuses on trans women of color who have been incarcerated. So mm-hmm. you're, you're talking about issues that they face. And as we're talking about grand marshals, though, I don't want to confuse listeners across the country into thinking that mm-hmm. they, you know, they're 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 done with their activism, because I think that they're actually at the heart of it and they've been doing this for so long and we're now recognizing their work and I don't want to take Mm -hmm. that away. But, you know, as far as you being the filmmaker and capturing, um, you know, even someone like Janetta talking about the work that she does, I I wanted to ask, you know, do you get this feeling that there's still so much more we have to do?
2: Definitely. And, um, definitely. And, um, even with Janetta Johnson's work, um, um, The overarching message is that um, in order for these oppressions and discriminations to alleviate and stop is for people to recognize that, you know, somewhere within their experiences, um, people project their hatred towards um, transgender people because they don't know how to um, categorize them or they don't know what transgenders are. So um because of that um unknown thing um people try to project their own fears and hatred and um that's really important in in my opinion. Mhm.
4: Mm-hmm. Yep. I I wanted to ask you, you know, something along these lines as you're capturing the stories of our grand marshals who work with the most vulnerable of our own community and stay on this topic of the transgender community. I mean, you immigrated here from the Philippines, right?
2: Yes i did
4: five years ago five years ago which is yes (laughs) wow that was only five years ago i think (laughs) i mean i don't even think we had marriage equality yet um (laughs) (laughs) yes yes not not full federal marriage equality at least Mm -hmm. but like you know i think for a lot of americans who don't know the philippines might just Mm -hmm. only refer to the lgbtq community as to how Manny Pacquiao, um, mm-hmm. you know, talks about the LGBTQ community, and and that's a generalization, by the way, I'm not talking all Filipinos and Filipinas think this way, but I wanted to ask you, especially about the transgender community, because there had been a murder mm-hmm. that occurred in the Philippines and by the hands of a, a U.S. soldier.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: Uh, in in kind of like your your feelings of. I can't say is it better for the transgender community here in America or is it better for them in the Philippines or do you feel that people are really, really misguided, miseducated about transgender people all around the world?
2: Mm -hmm. You could say that in general all around the world, but in the Philippines, the transgender community definitely has a unique experience in terms of discrimination and oppression. First and foremost, there is no name. For transgenders, they still are considered within the spectrum of of the term gay. So the the term in the Philippines is called bakla, and that constitutes of every spectrum, um, gay, transgender, and um, it it even even with that idea, it's very difficult to mm-hmm. even start. Um, uh, start the, the conversation because there is no name for transgender people and um, so there is already a difficulty even in the, in that part so how much more in fighting for their own rights as mm-hmm. a community transgender so that that is the kind of challenge that is present in the Philippines but um, in a weird way they are celebrated for for their beauty and you know there are a lot of beauty pageants in the Philippines and that's how um, a lot of transgender transgenders actually thrive. Um, they are celebrated. There, there are beauty queens in the Philippines there are transgenders who have won international pageants, and they've become celebrities now in the Philippines. So, in that respect, they they have some form of um, recognition. But still, there is there are no laws that protect them. We have an anti-discrimination bill that has been lobbying for sixteen years uh, and still hasn't been approved. So. In fact, there there, is no, there are no laws that protect transgender people and the LGBT people in general in the Philippines.
4: Mm-hmm. And then what are your thoughts on, you know, as uh, someone who's immigrated here to the United States and not just anywhere in the United States, but San Francisco, the <laughs> you know, <laughs> the gay sanctuary or whatever, you you know, people call it, um, but still yeah. seeing that the transgender community absolutely faces uh, discrimination, uh, you know, uh, harm yeah. and danger and, and all of those things.
2: Yeah, the most important um, difference that I've noticed is the racism that's involved, the intersectionality uh-huh. that, that is happening because um, there is nothing like that in the Philippines. There, there is discrimination in the form of class. So it's the privileged versus the underprivileged people. Um, uh, and that intersects with um, also gender identity. But here, that's the most important thing I realized, that racism is very rampant. And I, I have, you know, I never... I never learned that up until I came here and mm-hmm. how pervasive it is in terms of um, the experiences of our community.
4: Right. Um, yeah. I, I wanted to go back to the short documentary that we are working on uh, for San mm-hmm. Francisco Pride that basically uh, follows some of our grand marshals like Larry mm-hmm. Yang, as you mentioned, Fresh White, mm-hmm. Mia, uh, too, much, um, too Much, and also the, I'm missing one, and that would be the St. James Infirmary, the organization, Infirmary. Um, yeah. Yeah, you know, who is an organization that provides resources to sex workers, by the way.
1: Uh-huh.
4: Yep. Kind of after you've seen all this and you've talked to all of them, what what do you think viewers are going to get from this? Um, and, and kind of, you know, and then also understanding what San Francisco Pride, the meaning of it and what the organization can provide back to the community. What are your thoughts? What was the first first question again? I'm sorry. Yeah, I just kind of wanted to know what do you think that people will get from watching the short documentary, okay. and then the second one, since they're they are grand marshals um, of San Francisco Maybe. Pride, and you're doing yeah. this with San Francisco Pride. Uh, kind of the follow up question to that is, what do you yeah. what do you think that the organization can bring back to the community?
2: Yeah, I think what the audience will find out is that there there are still so much work to do um, with Janetta Johnson. Um, I have discovered that there aren't that much support in terms of um, transgender people who have been incarcerated, that when they come out of prison, there, are, there aren't enough support for them to actually transition and assimilate back into the society. And a, b- a big question is um, housing. They don't have housing. So even that to begin with, is already a difficult challenge for transgender people who have been incarcerated in terms of, um, White in his com- in his community, the, the transgendered masculine um, identifying community, there's the suicide rates is so high because um, a lot of their um, um, brothers feel invisible and um, they also face a lot of violence. Um, in terms of um, in terms of Larry, he he talks about um, appropriation in in the spiritual experience of um, the Dharma and mindfulness and and how he, as a teacher, is navigating through all of these, and how, how he's um, trying to teach his students to actually navigate uh, through the appropriation that the Westerners have actually um, incorporated into the teaching. So there are so many things that we can learn from, from these grand marshals, and I think what Pride can do with the project that we, we are doing is that we are actually... Um, putting focus on all these issues and um, making people aware that there are still so much that we need to do as a community and uh, we need to be cognizant about so that we as a community in general, you know, can really help each other and that we can really thrive um, amidst the things that are happening within the Bay Area right now. And I, um, it's, it's important to realize that we really need each other.
4: Jethro, I'm... Yep. I'm so appreciative of, of our partner work and, and of you and just I think that what we're doing is pretty special. Um I can't wait to see the short documentary. We can't wait to release this and launch it to the public in the community. I think I think that uh I don't think we have a date just yet, but we're thinking yes. somewhere somewhere around pride, right? <laughs> yes.
2: <laughs> definitely. I'm very excited myself and I'm I'm so glad that um We are working together. Um, It's not an accident that we are. I think that um, I've been brought into this project because um, I am slowly realizing right now the importance of it. And um, I feel so blessed and so lucky to be in this project. And um, I'm so excited.
4: All right, Jethro, thank you so much again for dropping by and uh, kind of giving the teaser, the spoiler to to everyone. This is what we're doing. So everyone stay tuned. If you want to follow the work that we do, you would like updates, you can head to sfpride.org, become a member. It's free right now, or you can sign up for the newsletter. I think that that's going to be the best way that you find out if you're not here in San Francisco. Jethro, I will talk to you soon. Thank you so much. Don't go away when we come back. We will have Sima the Inclusionist. This is the person who's going to help me close down the shows on Wednesdays, I think, now from here on out. So don't go away. Just a quick break.
2: g-r-e-c-a-r-e.com allegra home care serving your community
4: this is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay after many years of dating jen and jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding it's a big moment in everyone's life when you say i do especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW.
2: Babe,
4: I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort and when life needs a little encouragement Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit pacificfertilitycenter.com.
3: And now back to the Michelle Meow Show.
4: Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us uh, here on the program today. Today is May 11th. I'm Michelle Miao, your host, um, great guest, Jonathan Rauch. Oh, my gosh. Bucket list item. <laughs> um, I wish I had all the time in the world to kind of compile all the things that I've learned from his writing. I mean, he continues to contribute. Um, and he had mentioned he's with the Brookings Institute and his writings appear on The Atlantic. And so follow him there if you'd like to also support him. Um yeah, anyway, brilliant, brilliant man. And then Jethro Paling... P- P- Why am I screwing up on his name? I say it, like, every other day. <laughs> um, Jethro. I'm going to say Jethro, and then, yes, P- P- <laughs> What? I miss him so much already. Jethro Hug. Uh, to cl- help us close down the show, I had introduced a new segment to you last week, and it is from a familiar voice, Sima the Inclusionist. So Sima, welcome back to the program. Did you see your
0: the, the show on Coffee TV with you as a guest? I didn't see the Coffee TV show. I heard the radio show. Oh, well. I didn't know when the Coffee TV show was on because I want to tweet it out.
4: Oh, well, it, it was Sunday night. Um, I'm sure they'll play it again, but I, I'll I could load it up onto Vimeo and share it with you.
0: Yeah, and I'll share it with everybody else.
4: All right, Sima the
0: Inclusionist, everyone. Hi, Sima Lieberman here, the Inclusionist. Iggy Azalea claims that Beyonce used a racial slur against white people in her new album, Lemonade, which I think is a masterpiece. Iggy was upset and went on a Twitter rant about the use of the name Becky when in Beyonce's song Sorry About Infidelity, she says... He only want me when I'm not there. He better call Becky with the good hair. According to Iggy, the name Becky is a derogatory name for white women, and she took it personally because once someone called her a Becky, or whatever. She's offended by the name Becky, which no one else seems to care about. I didn't hear anyone complaining about the word Becky. You can be sure if what she said was offensive, there'd be a bazillion white people screaming. But instead, those of us who are Beyonce fans are too busy loving the album. Iggy has been criticized for benefiting and making lots of money from rap and black culture, but never speaking out against racism, taking time to understand, or even care where the music comes from. When criticized, she gets defensive and calls people anti-white. This is not just about Iggy, but it's about anyone else who, who denies that there's racism and that they deny that there's different kinds of privilege, one of them being white privilege. People respond with accusations of reverse racism, playing the race card, which I have no idea what that even means or what card game it's from, and or take on, like Iggy, a victim persona. And in case Iggy or anyone else thinks that she's being picked on for being white, let me point out that Beyonce is singing about her pain, Iggy, don't run around with a pain detector to make it about you. People will not like you. Two, you don't hear people criticizing Eminem or Paul Wall or Tina Marie. They were well-respected and only spoke about their own experience, told their own story, and did their homework to hold up and respect a tradition. And all kinds of people and musicians and rappers listen to the beast of Beastie Boys. First of all, I think that Iggy Azalea is ridiculous. I love Fancy, and I love some of the work she did with T.I., but she's turned herself into a caricature. Iggy Azalea is not oppressed. Being called Becky, Heather, even Miss Anne is not harming anyone. It's not denying anyone her job, and it's not getting anybody shot for no reason. And as a diversity and inclusion culture strategist who's obsessed with all kinds of music, I love cultural mashups like Dr. Dre and Eminem, Kendrick Lamar with the National Symphony Orchestra, Far East Movement with Will Am, and the list goes on and on. Iggy or anyone else who uses music and art that was born from the history of others, you need to learn about the history and where it came from. You need to support the culture. And I assume that Iggy has all kinds of people around her. She's worked with a lot of black people and I'm sure some conscious white people and people of all different colors. Someone needs to talk to her. Because she doesn't know what she doesn't know. And by now, she should want to know. But if everyone around her gives her a pass, you're hurting yourselves, you're hurting her, and you can prevent her from feeling hurt for all white people. Sima Lieberman, The Inclusionist, signing off. Hey. Hey.
4: That was awesome. Oh, thanks. I mean, you know, because that was a tough one to to discuss and talk about. In some ways, it was like you could feel people support Iggy Asalia in what she had to say as far as it being, you know, reverse racism or something like that. Um, Great way of pointing that out. Thank you.
0: That is why you do what you do. Well, thank you very much. And I hope that it makes a difference.
4: So where can people find you if they want to reach out for diversity
0: or have questions about diversity and inclusion? They can call me at 510-527-0700. 510-527-0700. But the easiest way, just go to my website. You'll find my email, simma at SimmaLieberman.com. My website, simma-lieberman, S-I-M-M-A. L I E B E R M A N dot com.
4: Thanks so much for joining in and tuning uh, to the Michelle Meow show today here on the Progressive Voices Network. I'm here Monday through Friday, four o'clock Pacific Standard Time. For everything else, you can head to MichelleMeow.com. We'll catch you tomorrow.